Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. This is the Tennis Podcast, and I'm your one and only fully talented host, Nick Amell. Uh, well, f- first of all, I'm sidekick host, Brandon. Second, when you say fully talented, do you mean like you are fully talented, like Michael Winslow, the human sound effects machine? Yeah. Isn't it obvious? Is that what that was? This was the sound effect of a, a rocket taking off? Hey, I'm going to replace it with some stock audio of a real rocket taking off and we'll call it my mouth and we'll see how people feel about it. Okay. So, Brandon, what's the show about? Each week, one of us brings a list of something. The other one doesn't know what this list is. It's it's ranking of of some kind, uh, some mysterious ranking. Hmm. And uh, they don't know what it is and they try to guess it on the show right now. And you don't know what I've brought this week. I don't know what list Brandon brought. Yes. I'm about to tell you that it's Rolling Stone's 10 Greatest Songs. For fuck's sake. The 10 Greatest Songs. Yeah. Now, they listed 500 of them. We're not going to do 500. We're going to talk about 10 today. Are you sure? I set aside the whole night. We can do all 500 if you'd like. I've only done uh, a few notes on 10 total. But there are more than 10 songs out there, and these are the 10 greatest. As judged by music industry people... They're the ones who voted on these and they judge it based on like their impact, like the quality of the song and then also like on its impact. Like mm-hmm. Same magazine and probably the same people that did the 500 greatest albums right. list. Instead of albums, these are the specific songs. Yeah. We did cover episode 100 something. We did the top 10 greatest albums. Yeah. According to Rolling Stone. So, we're doing the songs now. Okay. Is well, this... you sound just as enthused this time as you did for the albums. Well. <laughs> you said, so we're doing the same thing here. I'm enthused. What do you want? I did a rocket ship taking off. Yeah. All right. I'll try to throw in some more rocket noises. No, don't do a rocket noise anymore. So, ask your question again. <laughs> Is this like the albums list where it's updated every few years? Yeah, this is the most years. recent version, but it didn't change anything about the top 10. Okay, so when was this done? Originally or whatever, it was updated as most recently as 2010. Okay, greatest songs based on mostly their impact. Okay, all right, I'm going to nail it, just like I did the albums. Uh-huh. So, for songs that aren't in the top 10, I'm going to guess Friday by Rebecca Black. It's not. No. It's Friday, Friday, gotta get gotta, down on Friday. You need to make a commitment right now. Not That's the last time that you sing during this episode. Uh, all right. I will not commit to your singing thing because unlike you and your Santa baby stubbornness, I give the people, I'm not afraid to give them some entertainment, some show business. I'll give you a real guess though. How about for the top 10? Billie Jean by Michael Jackson. No, there's no Michael Jackson in the top 10. Really? And so, he wasn't in the top 10 even originally? Nope. Well, that seems wrong. His highest song is... They'll pick Thriller. Billie Jean is his highest ranked song at 58. Wow. Okay. Okay. Are there a lot more like classic songs in there? Most of the songs are from the 60s. Okay. Is Elvis in there? No. Well, the Beatles has to be in there. Yes. So, which Beatles song? How about uh, Hey Jude? Hey Jude is that one Beatles song. It's number eight on the list. Did I, fu- I mean, <laughs> knew it. Easy. This is easy. Are they all this easy? 
Yes, they're all super easy. You'll have this guest in no time. Okay. Will, this comment won't come back to bite you, make you look like a fool hey, at all. Hey, Jude. You got to cut that shit out. I'm serious. So, 1968 is the year that Hey Jude came out. It was released as a non-album single in August of that year. It was written by Paul, credited to the Lennon-McCartney partnership, as were all the Beatles songs that they wrote. It was a number one hit in many countries around the world. It became the year's top-selling single in the UK, the US, Australia, and Canada. It's a ballad that evolved Mm -hmm. from Hey Jules, which is a song that McCartney wrote. He was on his way to comfort John Lennon's son, Julian, after John Lennon and his wife had split up. John Lennon left his wife for Yoko Ono, and Julian was upset, one, because his mom and dad broke up, two, because his dad left for Yoko. Well, I got to tell you something. No ma- I don't know whose first wife was. Don't know. Don't know anything about her. Her name was But Cynthia. no matter who she was, it was a downgrade going to Yoko. The lyrics espouse a positive outlook on a sad situation, while also encouraging Jude to pursue his opportunities to find love. After the fourth verse, the song shifts to a coda featuring what you sang earlier, na 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 na, a refrain that lasts for four minutes. The whole song is seven minutes long, which is very long yeah. for a single. That is long for a single. Recording it led to an argument between Paul and George over the song's guitar part. George wanted to put a big guitar solo in it. And Paul said, no. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then they fucking had a fist fight about it. And guess what? George lost. Did they really have a fist fight? I don't know. It wasn't a fist fight. It was probably like sensitive, tiny little artists. They just yeah. said like mean, hateful things to each other and got their feelings hurt. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. That was the fight. Yeah. You and I are sensitive little artists too, huh? Yeah. Uh, so, that's the only song by the Beatles as a group that's in the top 10, but there is another song by a Beatle in the top 10. By a Beatle. By okay. A that's got to be John Lennon. Is it... Um, you think so? It's just got to be John Lennon. Yeah, it is Imagine by John Lennon. <laughs> okay. What were you saying? <laughs> it's number three on the list is Imagine by John Legend. Came out 19... Not John Legend. <laughs> I was going to say, did he time travel? John Lennon. 1971 is the year that Imagine was released. Its lyrics encourage listeners to imagine a world at peace. Nah. Without the barriers of borders without the divisions of religion and nationality, and to consider the possibility that the whole of humanity will live unattached to material possessions. You mean no fun? Yeah, where's the guns? (laughs) Exactly. Shortly before his death, Lennon said that much of the song's lyrics and content came from his wife, Yoko Ono, and in 2017, she received a co-writing credit. Huh, I didn't know that. I mean... What is Yoko doing these days? Anything? I think she still lives in the Dakota, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. I don't know. Stuff related to being... To John Fucking Lennon's rich forever without ever doing anything. Yeah. Yeah. It was written during the Let It Be recording session, which I didn't hmm. know. John finished composing Imagine one morning in early 1971 on a Steinway piano in a bedroom at his estate in Berkshire, England. 
Uh, Yoko Ono watched as he composed the melody, the chord structure, and almost all the lyrics, nearly completing the song in one brief writing session. Crazy. Wait, so he wrote that, though, while with the Beatles still? Right? Yeah, while they were recording Let It Be, which was, I don't know if you know this, but it was also recorded like on film. Sometime soon, sometime this year, there is a documentary that was completed by, uh, what's his name? The Lord of the Ring guy, uh, Peter Jackson. Oh, uh, yeah. Completed the Let It Be film footage. But like, I think he cut it. I think it's him. Anyway, cut it. Somebody cut it together. And it's now you'll be able to see all that footage. But that footage is from the Has same time. Has that footage time. not been released before? I don't think so. Not in this way. Huh. Interesting. We know the Beatles were uh, starting to fray at that time. Right. So there you go. Number three, Imagine. Two for two. That's the only John Lennon song, right? Yep. How about Jimi Hendrix? No. No Jimi Hendrix. Bob Dylan. There's one Bob Dylan song. Rolling Stone fucking loves Bob Dylan, don't they? They do. Which I guess named after his song, so. Uh, Well, is it like a Rolling Stone? It is like a Rolling Stone. It's Rolling Stone's number one greatest song of all time. They just did that because they felt like they had to, right? It does seem like glaringly obvious now that there's a little bit of branding involved with that decision. I mean, it's not the best song ever. I wouldn't even say it's the most impactful song ever. I don't feel like it is, but I also wasn't alive then, so... I don't That's know. fair. Maybe there's some That's merit fair. to that, but I will say, no. From my point of view, it, it's not even my favorite Bob Dylan song. No, I mean, I'm just trying to be objective. I, like, I definitely know that song and I occasionally hear people reference that song, but just from my own life experiences, I would not think it would even be in the top, like, 25. Bob Dylan says but, it's the best song he ever wrote. Well, we know how humble Bob Dylan can be. Yeah. It was written in 1965. Bob Dylan was just 24 years old. It appears on the album Highway 61 Revisited. The most stunning thing about Like a Rolling Stone is how unprecedented it was. This is from Wikipedia. The impressionist voltage of Dylan's language, the intensely personal accusation in his voice when he sings, How Does It Feel? Uh The apocalyptic charge of Cooper's Garage Gospel Organ, and Mike Bloomfield's Stiletto Sharp Spirals of the Telecaster Guitar. God damn, that's some flowery writing. Can they just talk fucking normal? I mean, apocalyptic charge? No other pop song has so thoroughly challenged and transformed the commercial laws and artistic conventions of its time for all time. I mean, that write-up makes it sound like, yeah, it's a pretty important song. And I, I don't take that away from it, but I just... Number one seems high, but anyway, we've covered that. Uh, it's about revenge. Not about revenge. It's like, it's kind of snide. It's like, ah, fuck you. How, you know, how does it feel? How does it feel now? Mm-hmm. Is it because he's made it? No, it's, uh, here, here's his explanation. He said it was 10 pages long. It wasn't called anything. Just a rhythm thing on paper. All about my steady hatred directed at some point that was honest. In the end, it wasn't hatred. It was telling someone something they didn't know, telling them they were lucky. 
Revenge, that's a better word. I had never thought of it as a song until one day I was at the piano and on the paper it was singing How Does It Feel in a slow motion pace in the utmost of slow motion. So yeah, he originally wrote it slow and they played it faster. Well, Bob, I know you're listening. Congrats, number one, greatest song of all time. Nick's not impressed. He says you can do better. Not impressed. I think my singing earlier on Hey Jude was better, but to each their own. All right. Is that it for Bob? Yep. Okay. What year is that? 1965. Several, okay, others, any... several of these other songs are from 1965. Is there something from Bing Cosby? No. Nothing that lame. <laughs> okay. This is all like, like rock and R&B. Okay. Mostly okay. rock, but yes. Is there a Rolling Stones song? There's one song by the Rolling Stones, and it also... Satisfaction. It is. I can't... In, <laughs> Come on. In parentheses, I can't get no satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. It's number two on the list. Wow. Also came out in 1965, same year as Like a Rolling Stone. It was written by Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. Keith Richards' guitar riff was originally intended to be replaced by horns. Horns. It opens the song, and his guitar riff is, the, is like the main thing you think of when you think of that song. Mm-hmm. The lyrics refer to sexual frustration and commercialism. Sexual frustration? Yeah. We'll get to that in a second. The American version of their fourth studio album, Out of Our Heads, released in July. It was a hit. It gave them their first number one hit in the U.S., in the UK, the song was initially only played on pirate radio stations because its lyrics were considered too sexually suggestive. <laughs> Later, it became uh, their fourth number one in the UK. So those lyrics are, you know, like I said, there's frustration. They outline the, the singer's frustration and confusion with the increasing commercialism of the modern world where the radio broadcasts useless information and a man on television tells him, how white my shirts can be, but he can't be a man because he doesn't smoke the same cigarettes as me. A reference to the then ubiquitous Marlboro cowboy style advertisement. Man, they should see what it's like today. I know. I guess they do. They're still around, aren't they? Jagger also describes the stress of being a celebrity and the tensions of touring. And then the sexual part, the reference in the verse to not getting any girl reaction. <laughs> Uh-huh. It was fairly controversial in its day. It was interpreted by some listeners and radio programmers as meaning that a girl was willing, you know, a girl reaction was like their willingness to have sex. And Mick Jagger said that they didn't understand the dirtiest line because afterwards in the song, the girl asks him to return the following week because she is on a losing streak, which is in a reference to menstruation. So she was on a period. I, I get, she says, because I'm on a losing streak. Uh-huh. I thought he was talking about his losing streak of not getting anything with girls, which would still be sexual frustration. But he's saying that she says, you return the next week because I'm on a losing streak, meaning I'm on my period. Okay. So he wrote a song about being frustrated that he can't have sex with a girlfriend when she's on her period. Yeah. Okay, well, that's fucking stupid. I'm sorry. <laughs> Number two on the list. I mean, am I wrong? No. Uh, well, his explanation is probably stupid. The song is good, but his explanation No, sucks. I'm not talking about the song. I'm just talking about the yeah. lyrics. It's stupid. <sighs> Can't get no satisfaction, Brandy. 
but I'm making this list my bitch. Yeah, I think you're making it your bitch days are about to be over, but continue. Okay. How about ACDC? No. Aerosmith? No. Led Zeppelin? No. No Zeppelin, huh? The highest, the highest Led Zeppelin song is Stairway to Heaven Stairway at to number heaven. 31. God, that's way too low. These lists, man, I don't know. Pink Floyd? No Pink Floyd. I mean, come on. Nirvana? There is a Nirvana song in the top 10. Smells like Teen Spirit. Smells like Teen Spirit is number nine on the list. Knew it. The newest song on the list, which is probably why no young people read Rolling Stone anymore. (laughs) (laughs) They age themselves out. The newest song on here is considered classic rock. Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana came out in 1991. It's the opening track and lead single from their second album, Nevermind. The unexpected success of the song propelled Nevermind to the top of several album charts at the start of 1992, an event often marked as the point when grunge entered the mainstream. Grunge. We know how much Nirvana liked being tagged as grunge. Grunge. Dubbed an anthem for apathetic kids of Generation X. Uh-huh. But Nirvana grew uncomfortable with the attention that the song brought them. Yeah. That's a mild understatement. Well, I mean, in many ways, directly and indirectly, led to Kurt Cobain's death. Uh, Kurt Cobain began writing it a few weeks before recording their second album, Nevermind, in 91. He said it was an attempt to write a song in the style of the Pixies who he admired, he said he was trying to write the ultimate pop song. Which is ironic considering how much he'd come to hate it when it became the ultimate pop song. He got what he wanted, and it wasn't wasn't right. He didn't know what he wanted. Last thing, if you've ever wondered where the title came from, Kathleen Hanna, who's the singer of the band Bikini Kill, Kill, uh, she's also married to Ad-Rock from Beastie Boys, She was friends with Kurt, said once that he smelled like the deodorant teen spirit. She wrote it on his wall. Yeah, he um, didn't realize that it was deodorant until months after the single was actually released. He interpreted it as a revolutionary slogan because they had been discussing anarchism and punk rock. Yeah. And it does sound like something punk rock or anarchist. Yeah, it does. It's a great title, and it's a great song. I know Nirvana diehards like myself, you know, none of them want to admit they like Smells Like Teen Spirit because it's the radio, you know, it's the radio-friendly pop version of Nirvana, but fuck it, man, it's a great song. It's one of my favorites. You know, he doesn't like the production on that album, but I, th- I kind of like, I don't know, what did he yeah. want to do different in the production because I think it sounds good. Well, he thought it sounded too smooth and clean. And he wanted it to be, you know, for lack of a better word, grungier, dirtier. But I think ultimately, if you could look down from above and see everything, I think you'd see that Kurt wanted what he wanted until he had it. And then once he had it, he didn't want it. Right. You know, he was manic depressive and... Point in case, ultimate pop song. Yeah. So, it's a great song. I'm glad it made the list. All right. And if you want to hear me gush about Nirvana some more, just listen to pretty much any other past (laughs) music episode we did. Squirt about Nirvana some more. Yeah, I'm looking through our episodes. We did the the most streamed 90 songs on Spotify. 
back on episode 31. It's actually one of our top downloaded episodes. And we definitely talk about Nirvana there if you want more. Life-changing, inspiring, uplifting, orgasmic. I love it more than I love my own children. This is what members have been quoted saying about the Tennis Podcast Patreon, maybe. Either way, if you're a regular listener of the Tennis Podcast, you really are doing yourself a disservice by not signing up for our Patreon. Here's why. The stupid ad you're listening to right now, it's horrible, right? I hate it even as I'm reading it. But our Patreon members skip this and all other ads every episode. That's right. No more interruptions during the show. No ads. Plus, this very episode you're listening to right now, and pretty much every episode, comes out early every week. That means you can listen to me and Brandon talk about life-altering topics, as we do, every week, and you get to do that before anyone else. If that's not enough, me and Brandon also do bonus episodes every month exclusively for Patreon members. Our bonus episodes usually cover ground outside of top 10 lists. Some of our most popular ones so far include The Life and Times of Dr. Phil, Brandon Answers BuzzFeed Quizzes, Is Nick Smarter Than a Fifth Grader, Celebrity Quotes and Fun Facts, and more. There's two dozen plus bonus episodes ready for your gross little ears right now, with new bonus episodes added every month. The only way to listen to those is on Patreon. And there's even more, like free merch and swag, but I'll go ahead and stop there. If you're ready to upgrade your tennis experience, trademark pending, then take two minutes now to go to patreon.com slash tennispod to get started. If you've never used Patreon before, I promise you signing up is super easy. It takes literally a minute. And the best part, you can sign up for as little as $2 per month. That's less than the price of an airport hot dog. Just go to patreon.com slash tennis pod now to sign up. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash one zero I-S-H-P-O-D. Sign up now so you don't have to listen to this fucking ad again. We'll see you on the other side. All right, you got to do some guessing. Guns N' Roses. No. Try to think of other big bands. Nothing more recent than 91. Mm-mm. Well, now on here, there's the most recent song on here is from... Oh, what about The Doors? No. The most recent song remaining on here is from 1971. And the earliest one is from 1958. Is that like Jailhouse Rock or something? It's no, no Elvis songs. There's or f- not Elvis. What's the one? Rock Around the Clock or whatever nope. the fuck it's called? <laughs> the, the song that uh, Andy sings with his quartet. Oh, in the office. That one? Rock and Robin? No, not that. Rock and Robin. Sorry. Just thinking of fucking The Office now, thanks. Uh, I was thinking of oh, rock one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, rock. Like happy days. No, not, that's good. Yeah. No, no. Okay. How about, is there anything from like a female lead? There's one song on here. Well, it's a cover song by a female, but, the, but this female made some huge lyric changes to the song that are what made it a hit. Are you sure it's not Rebecca Black Friday? It is not. Give me some more hints because I... So, it's technically a cover, but most people know her version more than they know the original. Is it Aretha Franklin? It is Aretha Franklin. R-E-S-P-E-C-T, tell you what it means to okay, me. It is Respect. It's number five on the list. Knew it. Came out in 1967. 
It was originally released by Otis Redding in 1965. Mm, yeah. Now, the two versions are significantly different. Through a few changes in the lyrics, the stories told by the songs have a different flavor. Otis Redding's version is a plea from a desperate man who will give his woman anything he wants. He won't care if she does him wrong as long as he gets his due respect when he brings money home. <laughs> Whatever that, that is. That is quite different. <laughs> that is quite different. <laughs> yeah. However, Aretha Franklin's version is a declaration from a strong, confident woman who knows that she has everything her man wants. She never does him wrong and demands his respect. Her version adds the R-E-S-P-E-C-T chorus and the backup singer's refrain of Sock it to me, sock it to me, sock it to me. Sock it to me. Yeah, you know, in the background, they say it really fast. I guess so. But suck I, it to me, suck it to me, suck it to me, suck it to me. <laughs> fucking stop. That's what they do. That's, they say it that fast. <laughs> I'm going to listen to me. I'm serious. Your little saying up there like three or four times, I'm going to repeat it like 25 times in a row on this episode. So <laughs> suck it to me, 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 suck it to me. Anyway, it was not a household like you've heard it before. I think fucking yeah. Austin Powers yells suck it to me. Suck it to me, baby. Yeah, I, I've heard that. Nobody was using that before this. The repeated line, Suck it to me, was sung by her sisters, uh, Carolyn and Irma. Carolyn had the idea to do that. And then Carolyn also had the idea to spell out R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Uh, no one gives her credit, though. Uh, I don't know if she has a writing credit on it or not. I guess not. But yeah, she worked it out with her sisters and then in the background they sang Sock It To Me. Well, think. let's break that down for a second because Sock It To Me now, so common. You mentioned some examples, Austin Powers, whatever. It's a saying now. But before it was a saying, when you're sitting down thinking like, what do we do with this song? You're looking around the apartment or the house. Needs me, and you see, needs some Sock It To Me. <laughs> see some dirty socks laying on the floor. What if we said Sock it to me. It obviously came from socks on the floor. This song needs something <laughs> and just saw some socks. <laughs> I mean. Suddenly Carolyn Franklin was inspired. Yeah. I mean, that's what it sounds like to me. I'm going to go with that. I read somewhere that sock it to me is sexual and it means like, and it's like a woman saying to a man like, fucking sock it to me. Oh, baby. That's it. It's a classic song. And a little bit of a of a difference in uh, meaning to Otis Redding's version, huh? Yes. Otis Redding's version sounds like he needs to fucking cool it a little bit. It's the 60s, man. And you know, it can't be forgotten that Aretha Franklin, respect, black woman in the 60s, I mean, <laughs> takes some balls. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. She demanded it. Yeah. She got it. She got it. She still got it. She's still alive? Uh, yes. I don't know. All right. Let me look. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's okay. Nah, she's dead. She's very much dead. <laughs> she died in 2018. Well, with respect, Aretha. Ooh, she died in a shootout. What? No, she didn't. No, she died from, she just got sick and died. She was uh, age 76. She had pancreatic cancer. Not a shootout. No. With police. <laughs> she had a shootout with her pancreas. Aretha Franklin. <laughs> she told you she wanted respect. So then, why don't I give you a guess? So that's the only female in the 10, top 10. Yeah. No more hoes. It's all bros. <laughs> Fucking wow. Okay. 
We said it. All right. Everyone left on the list is American also. Is there anyone more American than Toby Keith? Every single one of these people. Did he put a boot in the ass of this list to make it on there? How about Garth Brooks? No. Are there any country music musicians? No. Remember, this stuff is all old now. You have five songs uh-huh. remaining. No, four. One in the 60s, one in the 70s, two in the 50s. Stevie Wonder? No. It's a good guess, but no. Of similar status. <sighs> Ray? What's the guy's name? The other blind guy? <laughs> the other blind. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> the other black blind pianist? Yeah, the one Jamie Foxx played. Uh, Ray Charles. Yeah, is it him? Ray Charles does have a song in the top 10. It's number 10. I fucking knew it. What? I was sure that was not going to yeah, be right. Yeah, but you don't know the song. I don't know. No chance There's in hell. There's no, not a chance in hell for you to guess this. Leopard Skin okay. by Ray Charles. I don't know. <laughs> it's what apostrophe D, like what did. Uh-huh. What, I, what did I say? What I say? <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know that song? I mean, maybe if I heard it, but... If you heard it, you would alone. recognize it. It has a very okay. famous, like, melody. Okay. And it has a call and response. We'll get to that. What number is it? It was number 10. Came out in 1959. It's a rhythm and blues song by Ray Charles. The composition was improvised, but one evening late 1958, when Ray Charles and his orchestra and backup singers, they played their entire set list at a show and they still had time left. The guy was like, I fucking paid you for an hour. Yeah. And he's like, oh, fuck, I got to play something else. So he started playing something. He told the band, like, play along with me. Here's what I'm going to do. Play along. And then he told the singers, I'm going to sing some shit. I'm going to sing something and you sing it back. Call and response. And so he did those like, uh, and then the singers would go, and then they, oh. so anyway. You're good at that. But when you listen to it and re- realize it's something that was written live, that's pretty incredible. Yeah, of course. The response from audiences was so enthusiastic that he announced to his producer he had to record it. Uh, and this is the song that finally broke Ray Charles into mainstream pop music and sparked a new subgenre of R&B titled Soul. Oh, really? That's, this is the first song that started yeah, be- that? Yeah, because even though it incorporated the call and response from, like, black churches in the South, yes. it also had, like, naughty nastiness with the... Like, like sexu- black churches in the South. No, sexuality. Mm-hmm. He said, the people just went crazy. They love that little mmm, um. He told this to Rolling Stone magazine 1978. He was describing when they put the song together. He said, later on, people said it was vulgar, referring to the irresistible, sexually heated vocal bridge. And then he said, but, but hell, let's face it. Everybody knows about the mm and the uh. That's how we all got here. <laughs> He's not wrong. No. I love how protective the world used to be of... You know what I mean? Like music and movies and things like, can't say that. The kids will get can't ideas about, about how good it feels to put your thing inside someone else's thing. <laughs> right. They were so repressed that Ray Charles, the only time he could get it out was when he was playing the keyboard. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh. We could do that for a show. We could do a, what, do you, what did you call it? A 
call and response? Well, I don't think that's our, in our skill set. I think we need to finish oh. guessing these songs. Okay. Well, suit yourself. Leaving money on the table with a hit single. You've got one in the 50s, one in the 60s, one in the 70s. Now, the 50s, I'm struggling with. Can you point me in the right direction? Back to the Future. Oh. Go, Johnny. Go, go, go. What's that song called? What is it called? Go, Johnny. Go. No, it's called Johnny Be Good. Johnny Be Good. Fucking, that's it. I knew it. Johnny Be Good. Do you know who sings it? Who wrote it? Is it? Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> it's Chuck Berry. Yes, Chuck Berry. Listener of the show. Chuck Berry wrote Johnny Be Good in 1958. It was a major hit, peaking at number two in Billboard Magazine's Hot R&B Sides chart and number eight in the Hot 100 chart. It's considered one of the most recognizable songs in the history of popular music, except to Nick. Credited as the first rock and roll hit about rock and roll stardom, it has been recorded by many other artists and has received several honors and accolades. The opening guitar riff is what most people recognize from it, right? Mm -hmm. It is essentially a note-for-note copy of the opening single-note solo in Louis Jordan's Ain't That Just Like a Woman from 1946, played by guitarist Carl Hogan. And I read that earlier this afternoon, and I looked up the song on Spotify, and sure enough, it is a total ripoff of what some guy played at the beginning of this other song. Ain't that just like a woman, by God? Well, I will say it's not a 100% ripoff. It's pretty close, but he definitely made it like, he took this intro that this guitarist played on this song mm -hmm. and turned it into like rock and roll. It's got a little bit of swagger in it. I have two questions. First, you never told me what number this is. Oh, sorry. It's number seven. And what year was it? 1958. Wow. 1958. Now, I'm confused because Back to the Future, in the movie, he goes back to 1958 and he plays goes, that no, song. He goes back to November 5th, 1955. Oh, okay. But even then, I mean, that's only three years from when the song came out and they all looked at him like he was the fucking devil. Well, <laughs> so when I was a kid, I was very confused about why exactly they were so freaked out about the song. And I think mm -hmm. you might be, have the same confusion. So I think if you went back to 1955 and you played Johnny Be Good as Chuck Berry played it in 1958, three years later, or the way Marty McFly played it for the first like half of the song, you would have been fine. People would have gone nuts for it. They would have loved it, but they wouldn't have looked at him like he's an alien. The reason they looked at him like he was an alien is because he played the last half of the song like kind of like, like a, a rock and roller, right? like an like a, 80s. Yeah. Like, like yeah. Van Halen. And that's the stuff he said, you know, you guys aren't ready for that yet, but your kids are going to love it. Their kids are going to love the Van Halen part, but the 1955 high schoolers should have been primed for the Johnny B. Good portion. And that's why, what's his name? Uh, he says, Chuck is your cousin. Your cousin, Mar does he call, call himself Marvin Berry? Oh, oh. The Marvin guy that Berry. calls yeah, Chuck. Yeah. yeah, and he says, you know that new sound you're looking So, it's, he says it's a new sound, but it's not something that they're all like, oh, fuck, this sucks. Mm -hmm. Their tits were on fire for it. Their tits were on fire for it. And I also appreciate you comparing my confusion now to your confusion as a child watching the movie. It's exactly what it was like. Very childlike. 
You reminded me of something for some reason. Are you, was there anything else in that song? No. What about Johnny Cash? No Johnny Cash. Bullshit. So, I'm missing a 70s song and a 60s song? Yes. Are they bands or like one, one musician? One is by a band, one is by a musician. The 70s is the band, right? No. Exactly 60s. wrong. The 70s hmm. one came out in 1971. It's by a dude. I mean, he had a band play with him, but he's by him. And the one, number six, came out in 1966. It was composed by one guy and lyrics by another guy. Oh, man. I know these songs for sure, right? Yes. I give you number cl- a clue. Number four holds a similarity to one of the top songs in the Rolling Stones' greatest albums of all time. And it shares, shares its name with an album of the same name that was on that list. Marvin Gaye? Yes. Marvin, or as you hinted to me in that episode, Marvin Homosexual. <laughs> that was my hint. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Marvin Gaye. Okay, so his song is number four. What is his song? I don't fucking know, man. You don't know I don't it? Know. I mean, but when you say it, I'll be like, oh, yeah, but... Fucking uncultured swine. It's, uh, it's what's going on. Yeah, that Gaye. What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. I'll, I'll use some tricky editing to make it me sound smarter. It's 1971 is the year it came out. It was originally inspired by a police brutality incident witnessed by Obi Benson, one of the writers. Uh, the song was written by Benson, Al Cleveland, and Marvin Gaye, produced by Marvin Gaye. The song marked Marvin Gaye's departure from the Motown sound towards something that's more personal. They were upset by the situation and Benson said to, the, uh, to an author named Ben Edmonds that as he saw the police brutality incident, he said, what is happening here? One question led to another. Why are they sending kids so far away from their families overseas? Why are they attacking their own children in the streets? That's how they came up with the lyrics in the song, what's going on? And I realized when they talk about police brutality, they could have an updated version written now called, Seriously, What is Still Going On? <laughs> yeah. The next time you listen to this song, and if you're listening to this episode, don't stop listening, but later, listen to the song. Remind yourself when you listen to it that the opening soprano saxophone line was provided by a musician named Eli Fontaine, and it was not originally intended to be in the beginning of the song. Marvin Gaye heard Fontaine play this riff in the studio and he told Fontaine to go home. And Fontaine, like I guess he packed up his saxophone and he said, what are you talking about? I was just goofing around. And Marvin Gaye said, you goof off exquisitely. Thank you. (laughs) Exquisitely. (laughs) And he heard that little piece. And when you hear the song, you're like, oh, that was an accident. It just sounds so perfect. Uh, But he heard it and knew exactly that he wanted it. Then my next note has a clue. Oh, so he used it as it was then? Yeah, and uh, the next note offers a clue as to how he probably knew that. The laid-back atmosphere in the studio was brought on by constant marijuana smoking by gay and other musicians. Yeah, by gay musicians, huh? No, by Marvin Gaye and other musicians. Oh, okay. I think there was a lot of that going on around that time. On hearing a playback of the song, Gay asked his engineer Kenneth Sands to give him 
he said, can you, you know, give me my two vocal leads back so I could figure out which one I want for the song's release. And Sands ended up, he mixed both the leads together by accident. When Marvin Gaye heard it, he loved the double lead and he kept it and it influenced his later recordings where he mastered the art of multi-layering vocals, creating like three different vocals in his part. Well, I'm going to have to go back and listen to this now because it sounds interesting. Yeah, it is good. You know, I remember when we talked about Marvin Gaye last, didn't we discover that he was killed by his father during an argument? Well, I already knew that, but yeah, his father killed him. Yeah. It was an argument that ended poorly. Yes. And now a clue, a relevant, a segue and a clue about uh, the final one on the list, number six, uh, that you still have to guess, is similarly, this is a song that has a lot written about the musical composition itself. And it's one that has lots of layers. And if you wanted to really... Bohemian Rhapsody. No, good guess. But no, this one's from the 60s. Oh, yeah. If you wanted to really analyze, like, the musical composition, this is a good one for it. it. Might give you a clue as to who wrote it. Oh, Beach Boys. Right. It is a Beach Boys song. It's composed by Brian Wilson. Yeah. Pet Sounds album, maybe? And it's not on the Pet Sounds album. So, it was originally intended to be on Smile or Smiley Smile, whatever the album was supposed to be. Okay. And it came out as a standalone then? Came out as a single right around the, like right after Pet Sounds. Uh, so it's, one, it's like basically their last big single. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think. I don't know. I can't think of it. What is it? Good Vibrations. Good Vibrations. I knew it. Number six. Came out in 1966. Like I mentioned, it's composed by Brian Wilson. The lyrics are by Mike Love. It was a critical and commercial hit. It topped record charts in several companies, including the US and UK. It's characterized, as I mentioned before, by its complex soundscapes, its episodic structure, and subversions of pop music formula. It was also the costliest single ever recorded at the time of its release. Good Vibrations later became widely acclaimed as one of the finest and most important works of the rock era. The costliest, huh? The most money to produce it. Yeah, it helped develop the use of the studio as an instrument. Hmm. I like, uh, I've heard uh, Wayne Coyne from the Flaming Lips say that like, you know, he's not a very competent musician, but he can play the studio very, like he's great at playing the studio as an instrument. And Brian Wilson was like the first to, to do that. And it heralded a wave of pop experimentation and the onset of psychedelic and progressive rock. The track featured a novel mix of instruments, including a jaw harp and the electro theremin. That's the thing that makes that wee 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 wee. You know that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you know how it's a theremin is played? No. You put your hand in it and move your hand. That's what she said between these like these bars like one type of theremin you put your finger in something you slide it back and forth and there's another kind that i think just uses literally uses like vibrations or something in the air yeah i'm looking at it on google it's fucking weird it's like it's on a string or something and there's something like a hole you put your finger in in the middle anyway that's what she said the song's success led to a renewed interest 
and sales of theremins and synthesizers. Brian Wilson said that the good vibrations, the idea of vibrations, was inspired by his mother. He said, she used to tell me about vibrations. I didn't really understand much of what it meant when I was a boy. It scared me, the word vibrations. She told me about dogs that would bark at people and then not bark at others, that a dog would pick up vibrations from these people that you can't see but you can feel, which <laughs> made me like... That does sound scary. It does sound scary. It's a very Brian Wilson way of interpreting something that I did not, <laughs> did not think was scary before. Thank you, Brian Wilson. And yeah, like I said, if you are interested in nerding out on music, good vibrations, and it's super long wiki article is a good place to start. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go listen to it when we end. And there you have it. The greatest songs, according to mostly rock and R&B lovers in the mm. Western music scene. Okay. All right. By Rolling Stone. <laughs> yes. Way to shit on your own list, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let me wrap it up by going through... The top 10 greatest songs as called by Rolling Stone. Number 10 was What Did I Say by Ray Charles. Number 9, Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana. Number 8, Hey Jude by The Beatles. Number 7, Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry. Number 6, Good Vibrations by The Beach Boys. Number 5, Respect by Aretha Franklin. Number 4, What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. Number 3, Imagine by John Lennon. Number 2, Satisfaction. In parentheses, I can't get no mm-hmm. by the Rolling Stones. And speaking of Rolling Stones, number one, Like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan. So girls, if you're going to date Mick Jagger, just remember, can't go on your period or he'll write a song about it. <laughs> you know, looking at this, it's clear they like the 60s and 70s, a little bit of the 50s. Mm-hmm. Smells Like Teen Spirit really sticks out like a sore thumb, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> it's so much later and it's so much different. I mean, I'm not complaining that it's on there. I'm just remarking about how uh, it stands out. I mean, think about putting Kurt Cobain next to like fucking Aretha Franklin or Bob Dylan, just so different. But yeah, that's the top 10. I dig it. There you have it. That's it. You know what else I dig? Podcast reviews. If you're new, I read podcast reviews every episode. And the first one comes from Master Cosmo on Apple Podcasts. You can't help but to play along as they try to guess the top 10 ranked items of each category. Quality of the audio is great and they provide some fun insights. My favorite so far is the comic strips episode. That was my so list. So point to Brandon. Hell yeah. Because you, yep, you brought that list. Thank you, Master Cosmo. Letty G on Apple Podcasts says, These guys are hilarious and will keep you laughing! Three exclamation points. Love that they record live as you get the whole comedic experience without any retakes or edits. <laughs> Truly authentic. Just finished listening to the episode on most stressful jobs in America and the list was surprising as we thought our jobs were stressful that they didn't make the cut. The biggest thing that we loved about this podcast is that it revolves around one knowing the topic and the other guessing the answers. They love the format. They, I mean, I'd say that's it to a T. One knows the topic and the other guesses the answers. But Brandon, they also like that we do our podcast live in everyone's ears as they listen. Every time you listen to the show, it's live. That's why it comes across so smooth. We're so well-versed. We're so well-practiced. I don't know why you have to take a cheap shot at our own show, but all right. It's fine. Brandon, anything else? No, that's it. All right, cool. Well, we hope you guys will tune in again next week. In the meantime, I got nothing. That's it. So thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Thanks.